First John chapter one. We're going to try to get through verses eight, nine, and ten tonight. We'll see how far we go. Um, let me just quickly do a a little bit of a review. Um, John is writing this to solidify other Christians in their faith and what they believe and why they believe it. And what is prompting John to do this, obviously, is the Holy Spirit. And, and the reason behind it all is that there's a lot of false teaching going on, a lot of misrepresentation of what God has said and who God is and all of that. And one of the big sort of things that John is confronting is that just a few years after Jesus goes back to heaven, what is being spread is that there is not a difference between where we are positionally and where we are practically. Okay? And yet the Bible teaches, no, no, no. There can be a great difference between where one is positionally and where one is practically. In other words, positionally, positionally, when you and I accept Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches we are justified. The book of Romans. We are placed into the body of Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ before God. And that's where we are positionally. Okay? And that deals with our relationship which never can change, because our position in Christ never changes. And can I say this is again even why even today, up until today, 2,000 years later, there's still a lot of confusion amongst Christians between where we are positionally and where we are practically, and sort of mixing where I am relationally with Jesus compared to where I am practically with Jesus, or how we would say it in 1 John, where I, I am relationally and where I am in fellowship, you see. And that's what John was dealing with. Positionally, our position in Christ never changes. But practically, we know that we we don't always hold that position. Practically, as Christians even, who've been forgiven and who stand in the righteousness of Christ, we still deal with our sin nature. And we always will deal with our sin nature as long as we are alive on this earth or until Jesus comes and takes us to heaven. But our battle, if you will, with our sin nature and our dealing with the power of sin in our lives and all of that never affects our position. It never affects our relationship with Christ, but it does affect our fellowship. It affects, obviously, where we are practically speaking on the ground every day. And that's what John is dealing with because People were propagating in John's day that if you're positionally here, then practically you're here too. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter morally what you do. You're, it's all good. It's all one and the same. And John is like, no, John is making a differentiation in this book. He's saying positionally and relationally, we can be here with God, but practically, if you will, uh, and, and in fellowship with God, we can be in a much different place. You see. So that's why John comes along and writes this book. And it's all about fellowship. It's about that God came to earth, 
not just to establish a relationship with us, but to connect with us so closely that we live in fellowship with God. Because God understood, obviously, even before He came to earth, that though I would come and though I would set them up positionally, they were still going to have to deal with their sinful nature. They were still going to have to deal with the flesh, the devil, and the world, if you will, and the influences of it. And so therefore, positionally we could be here, but practically we could be here. We could be in two different places. And the only way to sort of start to match our practice with where we are positionally, according to God's Word, is by maintaining fellowship with God. That there's no way I can live in close connection with God and live that highest quality of life that results, as John said in verse 4, with this tremendous joy, this supernatural joy, unless I live in fellowship. So it's more than just a relationship. God wants us to not only be in relationship with Him, where we are positionally, God wants us to be in fellowship. And so the book of 1 John is all about how do I get into fellowship with God and how do I maintain that fellowship with God. So last week, we saw that John first says, well, here's one of the first things we have to remember about that. God is light. Meaning God, by His very nature, by His very character, Uh, reveals, manifests, lays bare everything. There's nothing in God to hide. He doesn't conceal or hide anything from us because there's no need to. He has nothing to hide. He's totally transparent. And He's perfectly okay with revealing who He is to us. And so everything around God then is going to be the same. So John says, so then that way, if if we're going to walk in God's light... And again, remember I said at the very end last week that it doesn't say we have to walk according to God's light because that would mean we'd have to be perfect. And the Word of God never tells us we have to be perfect to maintain fellowship with God. It just says we have to practice transparency. We have to just live in God's light and allow His light to expose us and just show up what's there. And then we have to be willing to just acknowledge what God's light reveals to us. But don't be like, Adam and Eve, who when sin came in, what they do? They hid. They, they concealed. They tried to withdraw and pull back because that destroys fellowship. And God said, the only way to maintain fellowship with me and experience this life and joy and all of that is to allow my light to expose what's really there and then let me deal with it. It's not by justifying it, making excuses, Uh, rationalizing it, blame-shifting, all that. It's by taking responsibility for what God's light exposes and then turning to Him and saying, God, you deal with it. That's how we, you know, maintain that fellowship. Which, by the way, I want to say this tonight. I I didn't share this last week. How many religions, how many religious systems How many even churches or ministries or especially cults have secrets, hide things, conceal things, aren't transparent? See, what God's Word says is this. A a ministry, 
a religion, if you will, a church, anything that is of God is going to be transparent. It's going to be out there. They're, they don't need to hide. They don't need to have secrets. They don't ha- need to have like secret societies. They don't need to hide behind certain things and only reveal certain things to certain people. It's, and you know where I'm going with this, right? I don't have to necessarily say. And I'm not just talking about folks, the Mormon religion. You could mention Scientology. You could... You could put, to me, almost all the world religions in there. And can I say that one of the most secretive places that you will find on earth is the Vatican. They have lots of secrets that they hide. And see, my Bible tells me that something that is of God is lit up. It is light, because that's who God is. It is transparent. There's nothing that needs to be concealed. There's nothing that needs to be hidden. There's nothing that needs to be put away as some kind of secret. That's not who God is. And so if we want to be of God and we want to be in fellowship with God, then we're going to be transparent as well. Because John very clearly said, if we say that we have a close connection with God and live in fellowship with Him, but we walk in darkness... And we do not expose ourselves to the light of God. He said, we're lying. We're lying. Now, the cool thing is, at the end also last week, we said that whatever God's light exposes, God said, I can deal with it. Because in verse 7, I want to point to this before we go into verse 8. John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The word cleanse there is the Greek word katarizo, where we get the word catharsis from. It's the idea of not just purging or purifying, removing all admixture from something, all dilution. It also speaks of freeing somebody. So in other words, it's the idea that the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to purge out of our life everything that shouldn't be there, to purify us, to get rid of all dilution, and literally to free us, if you will, from the power of sin. That's practically what the blood of Jesus can do. Positionally, relationally, we're already there in God's eyes. But practically speaking, as we battle and deal with sin and all of that, we need the blood of Jesus Christ to free us from the power of sin. And notice John writes something very remarkable. He said the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from some sin, all sin. And notice sin is not sins, it's not plural, correctly, it's singular. Sin, meaning every kind of sin. There is no sin, there is no moral failure. There is nothing that you and I can do as a human being and get entrapped by and get addicted to and be overcome by that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot give us the power to overcome and get victory. Do you believe that tonight? There is power in the blood of Jesus. And John says, 
His blood and His blood alone. Nothing else can give us the power. Nothing else can clean us. Nothing else can make us clean. Nothing else can purify us or give us the power over sin. Only the blood and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ can do that. But it can do it. And you and I need to believe that. Do we truly believe that that we don't have to live under the power of sin, practically speaking? Because if we believe that, that, that enables us then to live in fellowship with God. Because otherwise, we will continue to be dominated by sin rather than by living by the power of God and by letting the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us and free us from every kind of sin. You name it. There's nothing that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse us from. There's no amount of sin. There's no kind of sin. There's nothing. Nothing. Again, I say, nothing. All means all, and that's all all means. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Remember that tonight before you go to bed. That's a good thought to to go to sleep with. Jesus, thank you for your blood and for your sacrificial death that cleanses me from all sin. By the way, many times when we think about sin, we always go to commission. We always, we always think of it in terms, even as Christians, of the things that we shouldn't be doing, that we are doing, and we need God to remove them. But let's not forget what James 4, 17 says. To him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is what? Sin. In other words, there's also sin of omission. And that's just as sinful before the eyes of God. If I should be doing something that I'm not, that's sin. In fact, my perspective on it is, and God's trying to convince me of this more and more as I go through my life. If I would fill up my life doing the things I should, I wouldn't have time to do the things I shouldn't. You see? So actually, the sins of omission are just as equally important as the sins of commission. It's not just about pulling out of our lives the things that shouldn't be there. It's about putting into our lives, if you will, the things that should be there. With that said, verse 8. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves. I want to talk first about the word say. It means to affirm or insist on. And, and God was speaking to me about this because it, we, we've got to go back a little bit here. God cares about what we say. And obviously here, throughout the first chapter of 1 John, we've already seen where sometimes we say things that aren't true. They do not align with the truth or the reality of God. They do not align with, with divine revelation. And so, I should take very uh, seriously what I say. I should always be speaking the truth. I should always be speaking things out of my mouth and affirming things out of my mouth that line up with the truth of God. Well, but before I can say the truth, I have to what? I have to think the truth. I have to think the truth, which is why Paul in the book of Philippians tells us as Christians, we've got to get our thinking under control. 
because what I think, if I think falsely, I speak falsely. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if my thinking is off, my speaking will be off. So I've got to go back as a follower of Jesus Christ and make sure that I am focused on proper thinking in my life and that I'm thinking the thoughts that I should think. Philippians 4.8, think about these things, Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. Out of then my proper thinking, I will say things that are true and not false. Because he says, if we say that we do not bear the guilt of sin, that I'm, I don't have any moral failure, I'm good, I don't have any struggles, I don't have any issues... He says, you're deceiving yourself. All of us. Positionally, relationally, yes. As a Christian, that's where I'm at. But practically speaking, I'm not there yet. We're all dealing with sin. And again, God says in order to build fellowship with me and stay in fellowship, I understand you I'm not looking for perfection. I'm looking for transparency. I'm looking for for human beings and followers of Jesus Christ who are willing to live in the light, let God's light expose us for what's really there, and then acknowledge and admit, yep, you're right, that needs dealt with. I either need to start doing that, or I need to stop doing that, but I need to deal with some things in my life. I can't go through life maintaining fellowship with God by continually affirming I'm okay. I don't have any issues. I don't have any struggles. I don't have any sin to deal with. Because he says, it's the worst kind of deception. It's self-deception. And the word here is it's a sort of a cool word. It, it's a word that spoke about the, the planets just sort of wandering and roaming around the universe in their planetary orbits. That's the word John uses here. It's the idea of wandering and and roaming and sort of getting off track and going astray. That's what the word deceiving means here. And, And the thing that John is dealing with here and why this is so important is let's remember something. If I'm deceived about reality, then I'm going to end up deceiving others. And you and I, I don't think we consciously want to use our lives and what we even say to deceive others and get them off track and get them wandering and roaming and and all of that and going astray. So we've got to make sure that we stay on track, you see. Because then that's the best way that that God can use our lives to, to get other people on track. But if we're off track, if we're being deceived in some way or self-deceived, then we're going to end up deceiving others in some way as well. And so he says, let's make sure of what we say and that what we say is true and what we think is true. And if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The reality, the facts aren't there. We're living a lie, you see. And, and we're going to see here in just a moment, in verse 10, why it's so important that the truth be in us. You see. 
We're going to come back to that in just a moment. God wants his truth to, to literally be embedded or implanted within us. Uh, think of it from a modern technological, I, I guess, standpoint. God wants his truth to be hardwired inside of us. Okay? And again, we'll talk about why that's so important in verse 10. So that's verse 8. But notice what he says in verse 9. But if we confess our sins, now it's a whole different game. If I'm denying sin, if I'm denying my problems, if I'm denying my issues, can't stay in fellowship with God. I end up just living a lie. Because that's not reality for any of us. But God, again, doesn't call us to perfection. He calls us to transparency. And John says, here's the cool thing. If we would just confess, the word literally means to say the same thing as. In other words, agree with God that what it is is what it is. To admit sin. That's what the word confess means. If God says it's this, then we're basically saying, yep, God, that's it. That's what it is. Instead of trying to twist it or turn it another way. And, and he says here this wonderful verse. If we would simply agree with God about our sins, God is faithful and righteous, forgiving us of our sins, and again cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Wow. Unbelievable. Just living in transparency with God, according to John, is so freeing. So freeing that it allows us to stay in fellowship with God, which then allows us to live to this highest quality of life, this abundant life that Jesus offers to us, which results in great joy and fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Apart from that, I will withdraw, I will retreat, I will pull back not only from God, but from others. Because I'm not living a transparent, consistent life. And when we don't live that way, it destroys fellowship between one another and between us and God. There's an interesting verse in the book of Amos that sort of parallels this. It's where the prophet Amos says, Can two people walk together unless they agree to walk down the same road? And the answer is no. They really can't, right? You, you and I... If, if we're friends and we want to hang out together and we want to take a walk together, we've got to agree on an appointed place that both of us agree to meet there. And that's what the prophet Amos is saying in the Hebrew. And he, in Amos chapter 3, verse 3 is where that verse is at. Well, back to what confess means. It means to agree with God. So if, if I want to walk down the same road with God, if I want to walk hand in hand with God, if I want to fellowship with God and be in close connection with God, then I've got to agree with God on these things. I cannot live in disagreement with God and still be in fellowship with Him and stay in close connection with Him. Again, relationally, I could be here. But practically speaking in fellowship, I could be in a far different place. It's just like positionally, okay? Positionally. I could be out in the middle of the ocean 
And yet, depending on what's around me, I could be in two completely different circumstances. I could be in the middle of the ocean on a ship and totally comfortable, or I could be in that same middle of the ocean swimming, being surrounded by sharks, you see. Sort of the same place, but two different circumstances. I mean, I could be in a church, and I could attend a church even on a regular basis, but that doesn't mean I'm really part of the church. I mean, I, I, can, I can say that's my church, but am I really in fellowship? I, I'm related in some way to that church. I go every once in a while, but am I really closely connected to the people of that church? That's fellowship. See, relationship and fellowship can be two different things. But John says, if we would just live in transparency before God and agree with God that as we live in God's light, whatever his light shows up, we say, yep, God, I agree with you. That's what it is. Then John says, first of all, God is faithful. It means he's trustworthy. It means his promises about forgiving us are true. They are sure. They can be counted on. In other words, if God said he will forgive us, then he will forgive us. You can trust him for that. And he goes on to say, he's also righteous in forgiving us. Righteous and just and upright because someone did pay the penalty for sin. It's not like God just said, well, I'm just going to overlook it. No, God didn't overlook any sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus went to the cross. So that you and I who do, by faith, accept the sacrifice and the sacrificial death of Christ, Christ paid the penalty for my sin for me so God could be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul in the book of Romans. God's not unjust to forgive us because Jesus paid the penalty, you see, not me. Before I move on, let me also say this. Many times throughout my Christian life, and, and I, I've used this phrase too, so I'm, I'm not down on anybody. That you, I've used it too. The phrase of forgiving ourselves and having a hard time forgiving ourselves. But I think based upon what John says here and what other passages of Scripture say, God has sort of shown me a better way to sort of say it and be confronted with it is it's not a struggle to forgive myself. It's a struggle to accept by faith God's forgiveness. Because God told me, he told me, I will forgive you. So if I'm struggling that God forgives me for something, it's really more a struggle of my faith to believe what God said. Because God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God's word is sure. If God promised to forgive me of my sin, all of it, then I need to just accept that by faith. That's how I basically accept God's forgiveness. And again, it's not something that I necessarily am going to feel. Well, I feel forgiven. No, 
I accept that I'm saved, not based upon how I feel, but on the sure word of God. God said, you accept my son, you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So I don't, I don't believe I'm saved based upon all the time how I feel. I base my salvation on the promises of God. And when I'm forgiven, I base my forgiveness not on how I feel, but on the sure word of God who's trustworthy. He says that God is faithful and righteous in forgiving us our sins and cleansing us. And we've already talked about cleansing. To purge, to purify, to free us from sin. But I want to talk for a moment as we have a few moments left about forgiveness. The word here literally means to send away. To send away my sin. We could also interpret it to release my sin, to let go of my sin. That's what God does with our sin. He lets it go. There's a great illustration of this and these two aspects. It, it, it took two sort of things in the Old Testament to even begin to, to symbolize what Jesus did for us in totality. I'm just going to take you back for a moment to the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It only happened once a year. If you want to read about these things, read them in the book of Leviticus. I believe it's chapter 16. The Day of Atonement was a very special day because it was the one day of the year where only the high priest could enter into the very Holy of Holies, into the Ark of the Covenant, and basically offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. That was a very special day. And when he offered them on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, that dealt with the cleansing of sin. But if you read on in the book of Leviticus, there was another big event that took place on the Day of Atonement, a sort of a second part. And that was that the high priest also took another goat, besides the goat that was sacrificed, whose blood was offered on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And he took that goat, and symbolically, he placed his hands on the head of that goat, and he, and in a sense, transferred the sins of himself and the people onto that goat. And then what they would do is they would literally send that goat away into the wilderness. That's why it was called the scapegoat. In the Hebrew, Azazel, the one that was sent away. And that goat, carrying, if you will, symbolically, all the sins of the people, was illustrating what a great picture of forgiveness is all about. It's not that God holds on to the things we've done against Him or against others, but He sends them away, He lets them go. Which is why it's so cool that that one of the prophets picks up on that concept and says, oh yeah, by the way, God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Because it's again a, a perfect picture of what forgiveness is. He throws them away. He sends them away. He lets them go. He does not hold our sin against us. Do you believe that tonight? In order to fellowship with God, we've also got to come to a place where we receive God's forgiveness for the things that we've done so that we get back in close connection. Because as long as we live with that guilt of sin, and by the way, sin will bring guilt. 
It will wear on you. It will be a weight in your life. And the only way to get rid of the guilt of sin is to accept by faith God's forgiveness and cleansing of our sin. And when we do that, then we can just come right back in close connection with God, which is what John says. It's not that there's this easy, well, you can just live your life however you want to after you're saved. No! If you sin after you're saved, your fellowship with God, your close connection will be broken. There will be a price to pay for a Christian who sins. But there's also the promise of God that because of Jesus Christ and because of our relationship with God through Christ, that my fellowship at any time can be restored if I live in transparency with God and am just willing to confess and admit and agree with God that what I've done is wrong. God forgives me. Have I accepted that forgiveness? And then here's where the rubber really meets the road. Then God challenges us and calls upon us as his followers with these words. If I have forgiven you, you also must forgive one another. You got to let it go. You got to get rid of it. You got to send it away. If you're still holding on to what others have done to you, then you have not forgiven them. If you're still thinking and mulling over in your mind what others have done to you and how you've been offended, you have not forgiven them. You have not let it go. And my friends, when we live that way, then we also forfeit what? Fellowship with God. Because one cannot live in fellowship and close connection with God who has forgiven us if we are unwilling to forgive others. The only way we can maintain fellowship with God is by receiving His forgiveness for our sin and by our willingness to forgive others of the sins that they've committed against us. Let it go. Send it away. Cast it away. Stop thinking about it. Think about God's truth. And when you and I begin to think about all the sin that God has forgiven us of, that should put us in a place every day where we stop then holding the sins of others against them. Because we've got enough to thank God for for what He's done for us. And then John goes on to say, if, if, again, we would live this way and confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous, forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us, not just from some unrighteousness, but from all unrighteousness. Anything that we've done that is contrary to who God is or what God has said. That's what unrighteousness is. Anything that does not line up with God. Everything. He can cleanse us from that. He can get us back in alignment with Himself. That's who God is. Because God wants to live in fellowship with us. He doesn't just want to have a relationship with us, John says. He wants to live in close connection with us. He doesn't want to live, you know, far apart. He wants us to be buddies. (laughs) He wants us to be friends. He wants us to be arm in arm. Locking arms with Him. Living every day in close connection. But in order to do that, again, there are requirements to living in fellowship with God. And John is also going to tell us 
there are consequences when we live out of fellowship with God. Again, that's why I share with people, no, yes, I do believe, and if you want to, you know, boil me down to some phrase or semantics, once saved, always saved. But I don't believe that that means that a person who accepts Jesus Christ and has now is in relationship with Christ can just live however they want to with no consequences. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible gives heavy consequences for a child of God who lives out of fellowship with God. First of all, they won't ever experience the abundant life. Second, they'll probably be pretty joyless most of their life. Because they've never allowed God to forgive them truly and accept God's forgiveness for the sins that they've committed. And then they certainly aren't going to turn around and begin forgiving others of the sins that's been committed against them. They're going to hold on to them rather than let them go and move on. And then John says this, verse 10. If again we say we have not sinned, (laughs) God, I, I got this together. I have not violated any of your standards. He says, oh, here's some. We make him, God, a liar. And his word, literally in the Greek, his words are not in us. We then are misleading others about God. We are misrepresenting God. That's what the phrase, we make him a liar. We literally are distorting who God is to others. When we go around trying to make it sound like we've got it all together and we've got no issues, nothing to deal with. No, the transparent Christian goes, look, I understand this now based upon the teaching of Scripture. My relationship and my position with God is solid. It will never change. I am in Christ and I will always be in Christ. And I have been justified for all eternity. And I will stand in Christ's righteousness. But practically speaking, i got to deal with sin and I'm not perfect. But what God then asks of me in this imperfect world where I'm still dealing with sin is that simply I not be perfect, but that I live in transparency, living in his light. And when his light shines something up, I acknowledge it. I admit it. I confess it. I agree with God that what it is is what it is. I call it what God calls it. And when I do that, then I must again in faith receive God's forgiveness and cleansing. And not only let Him forgive me of it, but let His powerful blood set me free from the power of sin so that I can live in victory, so that I can live overcoming the sin in my life through His power and not live a defeated Christian life where I allow other things and other people to get the best of me, but where through Christ I rise above the circumstances of my life and I live on top of those circumstances by Christ. Then, I, when I live that way, I am presenting a true picture of God and a true picture of His Word to others. I am in no way then distorting God and misrepresenting Him and misleading Him to others and making Him a liar. And then John ends verse 10 by saying, and when we live that way, out of fellowship with God, His words are not in us. Why is it, again, important that His words be embedded and planted in my life? 
because it's out of this place inside here, this sphere, if you will, where all my decisions are made. And so God wants to make sure that his word isn't just something that that lays, if you will, on top of the surface. Go back to even the parables of Jesus about the sower and the seed. It does no good just to hear the word of God on the surface or even to know the word of God intellectually if I have not allowed the word of God to basically get embedded and implanted deep within me. Because it's only down here, deep in my heart, in the very center, if you will, of my being my soul where I really make my decisions and choices in life. And God wants all of us to get to a place where the decisions and choices that we make are based upon nothing else but his word, not how I feel, not based upon uh, circumstances or expediency or anything else. He wants my decisions and choices to be based alone on his word. And the only way that's going to happen, folks, is when the word of God is so deeply embedded and implanted within us, it has grabbed a hold of us at the very deepest level. Folks, that's why this church exists. That's why we teach the word of God the way we do, because we so desperately and I so desperately understand how I need the word of God flowing into my life every day on a consistent basis and get deeply embedded in me. Because otherwise I will very quickly get out of fellowship with God, become self-deceived, get to a bad place. And all of a sudden my, my life starts to go way off track real quickly. The only way to stay on track is to stay in fellowship with God and allow His Word to deeply penetrate my being. <sighs> Thanks, guys, for hanging in there with me tonight. I know this stuff is, it's a lot, it's, it, there's a lot and stuff, but it's so important. And, and I hope, and I'll say this in close, my prayer and hope is that anyone who hears these messages anyone even who sits here on Wednesday night, that these truths of God's Word won't just stay with you, but that these are so important that that you'll find opportunities to pass these truths and these Scriptures on to others because we so desperately need to hear what John is telling us today because we are living in a world today where even so many Christians are not living in fellowship and close connection with God and with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not what God intended. God intended for something totally different. And it's up to you and I to rise up and say, I'm going to do it God's way. I'm not going to do it the way other people tell me to do it or the way I think I should do it. I'm doing my life God's way the way the Word of God tells me to do it. I'm going to agree with God that that's the right way. Not this way. Not that way. But God's way. Let's pray. God, it is amazing. Absolutely amazing that a perfect God, a God who makes no mistakes, a God who has never sinned, a God who's never done anything wrong, desires to have fellowship with fallen human beings. Saved, but still battling sin. And yet, God, that's the kind of God that you are. 
As long as we're willing to confess, as long as we're willing to live in your light and walk in the light and live transparently, we can have fellowship with a holy God. Amazing. God, thank you. Thank you because there are so many people in this world, including myself, who've cut off fellowship with other human beings, and I don't know, I don't know half of what they are. And yet, you know everything about us. You know all the wrong, all the sin. And you're still willing, if we are willing to come before your light and be exposed and confess our sin, you're willing as a perfect holy God to have fellowship with us. God, may we never forget that. And may we treasure that. May we prize that. May we, may we be so inspired that you want to live so close in connection with us that every day, God, that's our number one desire. To stay in fellowship, as Jesus said, to abide in me. To remain in me. God, may that be our sole desire. And God, I pray that we would be a church that is so on fire for you and so alive in you that God, we, like the church at Thessalonica, becomes an example to other believers and other churches of what it means to live in fellowship with the God of the universe. To live the abundant life. To live with joy. To live in fellowship with my brothers and sisters and with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit every day. God, help me to receive your forgiveness so that, Lord, I can also forgive and let go of the things others have done. So that, again, we can live in that fellowship with you. God, go with us tonight. Give us a great rest of the week. Strengthen us, God, and get us prepared even now for Sunday and what you want to teach us and speak to us about on Sunday as you bring us all back together again. These things we ask in the precious and holy and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.